Uh, many of us here will know uh, the book of Ephesians. might seem a bit odd to start with that rather than Romans, but uh, Ephesians is uh, nicely split up into two halves, isn't it? You have the first three chapters, uh, which contained all the indicatives of the gospel, and then chapters four to six, the second half, contain more the imperatives. They're not separate, they're not disconnected from each other, but they are distinct. The first half declares the truth of God and the gospel, uh, what he has done for us and to us in Christ and by the Spirit. And the second half, beginning with a therefore, um, as a connecting pivot point between the two, instructs us on how we are now to live in Christ in response to and with the energising, enabling grace of God at work in our lives. They're both essential aspects of the Gospel. The first, without the second, if we had all the indicatives without the imperatives, would give us no guidance for life and would expect no fruit from the grace of God we've received. The second without the first, if we had all the imperatives, all the instruction without the indicatives of the gospel, would actually become a burden and a duty we could never bear, let alone fulfil, and would only serve to place us under a heavy burden of guilt, ever-increasing guilt. And this morning in Romans, as we pick up after the last three years, we're finally into... Um, what would be the second half of Ephesians for Romans. We have the therefore in chapter 12 and we pick up where the imperatives begin. The first 11 chapters contain the first section, equivalent to those first three chapters of Ephesians, the indicatives of the gospel. Chapter 12 is the beginning of that second section, the imperatives. Or in Romans terms, the first section speaks, all 11 chapters speak of the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel and the second speak of the God's righteousness revealed in the lives of God's people, in the lives of believers, practical righteousness, not to earn our salvation, we've already gone through that, but actually because we have received righteousness and salvation in Christ Jesus, even adoption by the grace of God. Because we are now children, saints, this is how we are to live in the household of God still very much by his grace, still very much by the enabling power and presence of the Spirit, even as we wrestle with both indwelling sin and all the external pressures and evils of the world as we walk by faith. At home I've got my Bible study software set up, um, particularly in the New Testament, to highlight all the imperatives, all the instructions, the commands in green. Um, There are other ways that imperatives or instructions are given, but the imperatives in the Greek are a a very clear way. And in the first 11 chapters of Romans, there's not much green at all. As I flick to chapter 12 and onwards, it's like a whole sea of green. The words are so many highlighted. That just indicates the difference in the, the sections that we're in. And as I said earlier, and we prayed that the Lord would keep our eyes on Christ as we look at these imperatives, these commands. Um, and therefore remember what the therefore is there for. We're actually going to spend a fair bit of time just in the first couple of verses because that's the umbrella for everything that's about to come in the next five weeks. Um, So we won't be going as slow as we do for this first bit (laughs) for the rest of the chapter or the rest of the weeks. I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or reasonable or rational service, depending on your version. 
having declared the righteousness of God in the Gospel in the previous 11 chapters, saving sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, including, if you can remember last year, chapters 9 to 11, uh, God's gracious plan of redemption with regards to both Israel and then the Gentile nations, Paul appeals to his readers to live accordingly in response to the grace and love of God in Jesus Christ. That is the meaning of the therefore in chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, because of everything I've said up till now, as a result of that, in response to this, now do this. It's not as though God's grace has done its work and it finishes at the end of chapter 11 and now we're left to our own devices though. All these imperatives, all these commands, we are also to walk and live by the grace of God. And God gives us his grace to enable us to actually follow these instructions. In fact, Paul alludes to that when he says, by the mercies of God, do this. Now, different translations, you might have by the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God. By is probably closer to the Greek. But however you look at it, he's making his appeal by the mercy of God and he's also appealing to us to respond to the mercies of God, I think. And all of that is only ever in view of God's mercies. So whichever way you look at it, I think it contains all the definition there. But mercy by definition is undeserved, isn't it? You don't receive mercy because you deserve it. That's not, that wouldn't be mercy. Mercy, just by definition, is undeserved. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. In fact, we deserve something far different. Being chosen, being saved, being forgiven, justified, sanctified, adopted into God's family, it's all gift, isn't it? It's all undeserved, unmerited gift of God's grace. We only receive any of it because of his mercy to us. And Jeremiah reminds us, doesn't he, in Lamentations 3, every day, this morning, there are new mercies for you to walk in. New mercies that flow out of the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. Isn't that wonderful? You get up this morning, you might, oh, can I do another day? Yep, by the mercies of God, he gives you enough. Not so much that you'll have some carried over till tomorrow, because guess what, there'll be new ones for you tomorrow to walk in. And you've used up yesterday's yesterday, if I can put it that way. Now in the context of mercy though, you might be interested to learn, you might not, but it's only in chapters 9 to 11 that Paul actually uses that word in Romans. So far, mercy. It's only when he's speaking about God's plan of redemption and his sovereign election and choice for the Jews and then how that plays out for the nations that God has used the word mercy. Sorry, that Paul has used the word mercy. Not that he's not referring to the abounding grace and everything he said in chapters 1 to 8. All of that is an action of God's mercy. But in particular, he's speaking about God's sovereign, divine um, election and mercy to his own people, the Jews, and then to the nations, when he says, by the mercies of God, in view of those mercies, don't conform yourselves to the world, but be transformed. I 
could look at those verses, but I've got plenty here. So we just let you know, you can have a look. And it's in chapter 9, 14 and chapter 11, 29. Uh, I think I've put them on your notes there. You could look at what those, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. It's God's choosing. None of us deserve it. And in today's consumer culture, and we'd be foolish to think the church hasn't at least, that hasn't crept into the church at least a little bit, wouldn't we? We, I don't know if we have the great, um, a great understanding of mercy, of what we don't deserve. Because most of us think we deserve quite a bit. We're entitled, we have rights, don't we? In this, in today's age. And if we don't deserve something or can't get something, well we can always put it on lay-by. There's, there's prayed, we're not good at waiting. And we don't have to these days, even if we can't afford it, we can put it on lay-by or afterpay or whatever else you can do, the credit card. But, Because of all of that, I actually wonder in almost a global sense, at least in the Western world, the notion of mercy can be lost on us. Because if we think we are full of rights, mercy never comes into play. Because we do deserve everything if we've got rights. But mercy means we don't deserve it. The fact that we are totally helpless to save ourselves, we're fallen and depraved, and the idea that we don't actually deserve the gift of God, to be saved, but in fact deserve the wages of sin, that doesn't really equate in modern thinking, does it? It goes hand in hand with the fact that we not, don't really take sin all that seriously anymore. But that also means, in turn, that any response to God's mercy, out of gratitude, out of obligation, will actually be pretty weak. If we've got a small view of mercy and think we deserve so much, when we receive something we don't actually deserve, we're not going to respond very well, are we? And so my prayer, I guess, here and what Paul is telling us here is we actually need to realise just how great God's mercy is because then our response will be all the more strong. If we don't think we deserve that, or if we think we didn't, des- we didn't deserve the wages of sin and God only gave us a little bit of mercy to help us over the line, we'll only respond with a little bit of gratitude. Everything we've received is gift by God's mercy. His grace. And so Paul is telling us here, in view of that, live a life pleasing to God, not out of a motivation of fear, but out of a motivation of gratitude. Not in view of God's wrath or his judgment that comes upon sinners, but in view of his mercy that we sinners have received and are now saints and children of God. And so these following chapters receive the instruction, I believe, of the grace of God. It's not removed from the grace of God. In Titus 2, Paul puts it this way, the grace of God has appeared, I think he's speaking about Jesus himself, but he talks about the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. God's grace teaches us to live a life, to say no to ungodliness And yes, to living godly and upright lives in the present age. The grace of God is what teaches us to live lives not out of fear, not out of guilt, but out of faith and gratitude by the mercies of God. And it's probably worth considering for a moment and asking ourselves, do we live our lives, do you conduct yourself each day in your relating, in your daily walk, out of fear and guilt 
or out of faith and gratitude? We'll come back to that question in a moment. But for now, Paul tells us here that it's to be the latter, out of faith and gratitude, in view of or by the mercies of God, our entire lives. Now, as children of God, our entire lives, every aspect, our whole bodies, are to be presented to God as a living sacrifice, given and lived as a response of faith and gratitude, in view of or by the mercies of God. That's no small thing, is it? Our entire lives. The covenant mercy of God that is shown to Israel and then to the nations in redeeming us and he's bound himself to us in covenant love, made himself our father by bringing us into his family, actually puts us in covenant obligation to the one who's redeemed us, to the Lord. And that obligation is summed up here to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is our spiritual or reasonable act of worship. I don't think it's that far off being a New Testament parallel to the Old Testament uh, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall, almost with an implied therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. Or the beginning of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land, I've redeemed you, therefore implied, you shall not have any other gods before me. Still all of God's grace, I'm the one who's redeemed you, you're now mine. I was sharing uh, the other night with some folk, um, the New City Catechism, the Westminster Confession I think it is, um, what's our only hope and joy in life? That we are not our own, but belong, life and soul, body and soul, life and death, to Jesus Christ. Today's day and age is no comfort or joy at all to belong to someone else. I'm my own person, aren't I? I do as I please. No, under God, it's the greatest joy and comfort and hope to actually belong to God. This, Paul says, is a reasonable or spiritual act of worship. And the reason we've got so many variations, who's got reasonable act of worship? or spiritual act of worship in your version, in your Bibles, if you've got Bibles there as a whole. And the commentators spend pages trying to define because the words can be a little bit um, ambiguous maybe, or there's many definitions. I like how Liam Morris puts it together rather than, he sort of sits on the fence, but I think rather than sitting on the fence he just takes the whole paddock. Um, he says, I cannot, we cannot feel confident that either spiritual or rational is absent from the adjective or that worship or service is lacking in the noun. There is a rich complexity in the expression. Just include it all. Uh, In other words, this spiritual act of worship involves our whole bodies, which includes our minds. It's rational. The word is logikos. logikos. It's logical. It's reasonable. This is the only reasonable or rational response to the mercies of God. Offer your whole selves to him as a living sacrifice. And this spiritual worship is, can, involves a physical response. Anything less or anything other is just not reasonable. Both the Spirit of God, with a capital S, and the Spirit of the Gospel, little s, demands nothing less. Which means our entire life is an act of worship. Whether you think it is or not, it is. Not just the times we gather on a Sunday morning or sing a song on a Thursday morning, 
not just the part of the service that we might call a worship time, as I know it happens in some places, but our whole lives, everything we do with our bodies, with our minds, is an act of worship. Either an act of worship which is holy and pleasing to God in worship of God, or something which is not in worship of some other God, either ourselves or an idol. And here Paul tells us our worship is to be a living sacrifice, sacrificial. That's temple language, isn't it? Which means what? Not that the Old Testament sacrifices are to be continued. We're not to go put ourselves on the altar, literally. But what does it mean? Well, Paul, Christ has actually done that once for all, hasn't he, on the cross? He's finished the sacrificial uh, system in that sense. It might be that what Paul's referring to here is the burnt offering, uh, which is a whole burnt offering involved in the giving of an unblemished animal from your own flock if you had one. You didn't give God your leftovers. You gave him the unblemished. And it was completely burned up, wholly given to God, representing complete consecration and devotion to him. This is something of what Paul is actually instructing us in. We are to give our whole lives in selfless, self-giving devotion to God. And when you think about what sacrifice involves, it's costly, isn't it? We don't often like thinking about that part of the Christian life, and all the love and grace of God, and all, but actually he, there's a cost. We're called to this. Jesus himself said, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself. And whilst we cannot add anything to God, we can't give anything to God that he doesn't already have. We can't give him anything of ourselves that he hasn't actually given us him already, himself. We can't add to his glory or his status or his worth. We are to give him thanks and praise though, aren't we? And we're actually to give him everything which is already his, which is our whole being. We are his. Remembering, as you've got in your notes there, God requires nothing more of us or from us for our salvation. All of that is finished in Christ Jesus. That is done. That is complete. We don't add to that at all. And yet, having saved us, he requires nothing less of us than our whole bodies, our whole selves. As we live in grateful and delight-filled response to his mercy and his grace. You might sing the hymn, In Christ Alone, I am his and he is mine bought with the precious blood of Christ. That's how much you are worth to the Father, the blood of his own Son. And you're now his. We're not our own, we belong to God. We're his children. He is our Father. And so our spiritual or reasonable act of worship involves our whole life, a living sacrifice of our bodies. Just as the sinful nature of our hearts works out in what we do with our bodies, Paul's explained that earlier. So too, it's with our bodies that our heartfelt faith and devotion to God is to be worked out. Yes, God looks at the heart, but the fruit of that comes out in what we do with our bodies. I think Paul himself offers the best explanation back in chapter 6, in verse 11. So you also, you've died to sin... So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body 
to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That is, there's this great, if you want to put it in these terms, theological and spiritual death in Christ that we've gone through through faith and baptism. But that, if we can say spiritual reality, is to be worked out in our physical reality with our bodies, what we offer our members of our bodies to do. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. After all, we've been united to Christ, haven't we? And he's the head of the body. We're one with him. And so we're to live as Christ lives. Verse 16, he says something similar of chapter 6. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? It was two years ago since we looked at this, wasn't it? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching that you have, that, um, which, to which you were committed and having been set free of sin have become slaves of righteousness. So at the end of verse 19, present your members, your bodies, as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So as we said earlier, Paul's instructing us as Christian believers to live a life pleasing to God, not out of, not out of fear, but out of gratitude. Not in view of wrath or judgment, but in view of his mercies. And that includes everything we do with our whole body, mind and soul. And so I ask the question again, do we live, conduct the ways we live, out of fear and guilt, or out of faith and gratitude? One is exhausting loses power over time. You can, you can run on fear for a while, if that's your motivation. But in the end, we'll come to doubt God's love. We'll doubt our own salvation. We'll forever be fearing his judgment. And we'll see any sufferings and trials that we endure in this life as God's judgment. But if we live in faith and gratitude to God's grace and mercy, we'll actually find our strength and sustaining power in the love of Christ. And we'll know that God is good, always and that he's always working his good purposes, even through our suffering. And we'll be able to go through that with a clear conscience. Whether we live our lives out of fear and guilt, or faith and gratitude, I think tells us whether we've really received and grasped the grace of God in his son, Jesus Christ. And I'm sure if you're anything like me, there are times in your life where you seem to wobble between one and the other. And that's when we need to pray, Lord, would you show me again just the abounding love and your mercy and grace that covers all my sin. Refresh our hearts, restore in me a new spirit. So what should these lives, what should this spiritual act of worship look like? Well, verse 2, we're only getting verse by verse, but we'll get there, don't worry, uh, is another umbrella statement about what this should, how this should play out. First of all, our lives should look different to the rest of the world. Our lives should not be conformed to the way of the world, this present evil age, which includes they shouldn't be in rebellion against God active, angry, enmity with God. Shouldn't be lawless and impure, 
with blatant disregard for the will of God and the word of God, claiming to have a wisdom apart from God. But it also includes not striving for righteousness based on our own merits and works. I don't know how you found it, if you had children, uh, as you raise them, we want our children to fit in, don't we? It's one of the biggest things when they head off to school, when they go to church, wherever, they, we want them to fit in and there's a rightness to that. We should raise our kids so they fit in to a certain degree. They should be able to contribute and relate to the community well. But in another sense, as Christian parents, we shouldn't be raising our children to fit in. We want to raise them to be holy children of God, which means they're set apart from the world, not conforming to the ways of the world. And so we need a huge amount of wisdom there, don't we? We need all the power and presence and gifting of the Spirit to know when we say, no, that's not for us, and yes, that is for us. We are all meant to fit in, like even elders, uh, when Paul instructs Timothy and Titus about elders, they're to be well thought of by outsiders, So there is a sense where we are all to fit in with the world. But we're not meant to fit in with the social or cultural norms that are in opposition to God. And if you talk to any young people today or know what's going on in the scene and social media, I feel that's getting harder and harder because the voices, the images and what they're being told, the the untruth of the media and the world, anti-God, it is just rife. More than it ever has been. We, even myself, we were raised in some sort of Christendom age. We're not there anymore. They're not just hearing things that are neutral, they're hearing things that are anti-God, anti-God worldview. And so to raise our children in today is a whole different ballgame. And they really need to be hearing time and time again the truth of Christ, the grace of God, that they're loved of God. So the first thing we learn about presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, is that there should be something different about us and our lives compared with those who have not received God's mercy and don't know the grace of God. Instead of being conformed, shaped into the image of this world and the way this world would like to mould us, instead of that we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Contrary, can you remember way back to Romans chapter 1 where the minds of those who rejected God and did not give thanks to him, God handed them over to a debased mind, futility of thinking. Instead of that, our minds are to be renewed, restored and reformed so that we can discern God's will, so that we know what is good and right and pleasing, so that we can know the difference between right and wrong, his perfect will. And note the passive tense here. It's not transform yourselves, It's be transformed. God is the one who does the transforming and renewing by the Spirit. And so to submit to his shaping of us and resist the world's shaping of us. If we consider what that means with other references that Paul has in mind, what it is to be different to the world and different to what we were before now that we've received God's mercy not conformed but transformed and renewed. Think of Colossians 3, we're to set our minds on things above, where Christ is. Our minds are to be guarded by and governed by the peace of Christ and the word of Christ. Our thoughts and imaginations and our determinations are to be captured and constrained by the love of Christ. And we're to be filled with and informed by and abide in the truth 
of Christ, the Word. In words not taught by human wisdom, Paul says in Corinthians, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. This renewal of our minds is mind-blowing, really. God gives us insight into things that others cannot see. Just been going through 1 Samuel up the hill on Wednesday nights. We've just got past David and Goliath. You know one of the biggest differences that David has to all the other people in Israel at that time? They all hear Goliath putting down his threats and his challenge and they run away and they're scared. Even Saul, who's head and shoulders, he's the biggest guy in Israel. He's shaken in his boots. David comes and drops off some goodies for his brothers. He hears these threats and sees Goliath and all he sees and hears is an uncircumcised Philistine defying the armies of the Lord. He sees things through a theological, through the lens of the kingdom. Everyone else just sees human, humanistically. That's what the renewing of our mind does. It sees things through the kingdom, the lens of the kingdom. And that means that at one level... The church as a whole will have a uniformity about it because we're all being transformed and renewed in our minds and hearts together and the way we live won't be the same as the world. There'll be a union that we have in Christ Jesus. It's all written actually to the church. It's not just individuals. But at another level, as the next verses explain, we'll all look different. We'll all be different and it'll all be expressed differently in our lives because we've all got different gifts. Now, I've spent a fair bit of time in the first couple of verses. Don't worry, we'll move through the next few in a more expedient fashion. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, verse 3, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, sober judgment does mean not being drunk, but it also has this sense of just being level-headed and objective, not being so puffed up that you can't walk out the door because your ego's too big, your head's going to blow up, and not being so downtrodden and deflated that you think you're nothing. Sober judgment. In touch with reality. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. True humility, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And Paul, I think, helps us understand what it is to consider ourselves with sober judgment with what he says next. Actually, consider yourselves as part of the body of Christ. You can't run the show on your own. But nor can the show go on without you, so to speak. You're all part of the body, each individual members of it. You've all been given gifts. He talks about this elsewhere, doesn't he, in Corinthians and other places. And we've all got a part to play. That's a really helpful way to know what it is to consider yourself as sober judgment. You're part of the mob. And you've been given gifts, so use them, he says. (laughs) Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, use them. That's what he says in verse five, uh, verse six. Now we might get a little bit caught up on what it means. Well, hang on, what's this about each of us giving a gift according to the measure of faith that God has assigned? Does that mean if you've only got a little bit of faith, you've only got a little bit of gift, and oh, you've got big... Well, then you start to sort of um, quantify things that maybe shouldn't be quantified. It could be that 
there's different amounts for each believer assigned by God. It's still God who signs it all, so we've got to just trust him with that. Or it could be that the measure here is the standard or instrument of measure, that is your faith in Christ, is the instrument for measuring. Uh, Paul, Tim, uh, sorry, Tim Keller puts it this way. Paul is saying, all of you have been given your saving faith in Christ crucified, and that's how you're to measure yourself. That is, it's not of yourself, it's of Christ. And that means we first need, uh, need first of all to realise that we are all the same. We're all sinners who've been saved by grace through faith. So use your gifts according to that measure. Humility in view of the mercy of God with all the fullness of God's grace, regardless of your background or your abilities, your competence, we're all saved in Christ and God loves us equally in Christ with abundant, abounding love. So use your gifts to that measure. And I don't think the list Paul gives here is exhaustive, but as we are God-saved and loved children, we've been given gifts and there is a way, well, first of all, we are to use them, And secondly, there's a way we're to use them in proportion to our faith, serving in service, teaching in teaching, exhorting in exhortation. Might sound somewhat redundant, but I think he's saying, again, if you've been given a gift, if if you've got the gift of service, make sure you serve. If If you're a teacher, then teach. If they're your gifts, make sure you use them. Give and guide and show mercy with generosity, with zeal, with cheerfulness. In other words, the using of our gifts isn't meant to be a heavy burden. There's not meant to be any reluctance here. Nor is there meant to be any sideways glance. Oh, I wish I had that person's gift. They seem to be doing better than I. No. And I think Paul's almost saying, if, if you're living like that, well, back up and get over it and get on with it. You're part of the body. You've been saved by God's grace just like that person. And you're an important part of that body. Think of that with sober judgment. It's about Christ and about the body, about serving him and serving one another. It's not about you. And in similar fashion to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, where Paul's speaking about similar things, where he says that without love, what are we? Nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Here too, he says, make sure in the use of your gifts, verse 9, let love be genuine. Not just on the surface, not putting on a false sort of uh, facade Sunday mornings or any other time. Let it be genuine. Your Remember your spiritual act of worship, your living body sacrifice, every part of our life is to be full and it's meant to be honest and true. And then he goes on to say what this love looks like in the church, in the body of Christ and also expressed outwardly from the church in the world. And I'll sum it up in these ways. It's both countercultural and counterintuitive. That is, we're not being conformed to the world, we're being transformed into the image of Christ. Countercultural. Counterintuitive to what it was, might, it might have been before we knew the grace of God. It's no longer driven for ourselves, it's driven towards God and others. And that shouldn't surprise us since the Lord is transforming us and renewing our minds. I think these next few verses are pretty straightforward even though they're a long list of things. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. I love that verse. 
I've played golf with Jeff once and he's just as competitive as I am. No, I can get quite competitive. This is the one verse in all scripture I actually have a justification for being competitive. Outdo one another. <laughs> We're meant to be like Nadal and Djokovic on the, on the tennis court, outserving one another. Showing honour. Show more honour to them than they show you. When I grew up, there used to be a cartoon, I think it was two squirrels. Um, and whenever they got to a doorway, they'd always say, after you, no, after you, after you. It's a bit like that. Dominic Smart, if you knew Dominic, um, he used to say the slowest thing in the world was two Christians walking out a door, outdoing one another in honour. After you, no, after you. That's a good way to even think about a marriage, isn't it? Outdoing one another in honour. Extremely practical way of worship, all of this, isn't it? And love. Extremely practical and very comprehensive in every aspect of life. And it's constant as well. The Christian doesn't get a holiday from love or from outdoing one another in honour, nor from prayer or serving. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's what genuine, sincere love looks like. It's not just a veneer or politeness of love. It's deep and it's genuine. And it hates evil and it clings to what is good. It's not ambivalent nor does it have a distorted view of what's good and evil. Remember, God's renewing our mind, teaching us so that we might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And as we'll see more in the coming verses, this really is the gospel-shaped life. This is the life of those who have been transformed by the renewing of their minds and their hearts. And it's not just affective, it's not just a matter of the heart, it's active, it's physical, it's our living body sacrifice. It's even competitive, like I just said, outdoing one another in honour. There's an energy about it, isn't there? Do it with zeal, he said earlier. The one who leads with zeal. And, just as we read in 1 Corinthians, genuine love here is also patient. Patient in affliction. What did Les say? We don't like waiting, especially when there's suffering going on. Well, a life of faith is a life of waiting. We're to be patient, long-suffering in affliction, constant in prayer, and we're to be generous to one another. We've been given gifts of grace to use. We've been given love and we are to show love towards others in practical ways. And from verse 14 onwards, we're to bestow blessings upon others even our enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There's a sense of empathy, a real empathy with Christians that we should have for one another and for others. Rejoicing with those who are joyful and weeping with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. This is genuine love still at work, isn't it? The final verse is like a bookend. It should, um, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Verse 9 says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. 
we live in a battle between good and evil, don't we? Internally, the flesh and the spirit, as well as in the world. But what's the way of victory in that? Overcome evil with good. Don't fight fire with fire. It's not a normal, natural, especially not our fallen natural response, is it? To repay evil for evil. To bless those who persecute us. To give food and drink to our enemies. But that's precisely what we're called to do here. And we're to do that just as deeply and as constantly and persistently as we are to love one another and be generous to other believers. The empathy and humility that we read of earlier in verse 15 and 16 go hand in hand with the one who blesses and does not curse. And if we find our empathy and our humility waning or become detached and proud, then we might just realise that that's when evil's creeping in and starting to have its way with us. And then envy and ambition and pride will take over. Now this doesn't mean that we just ignore sin or injustice or evil by blessing our enemies and praying for them. We are to hate evil. That's what it says in verse 9. Abhor what is evil, but it's not for us to avenge evil. We're to live peaceably and in harmony as much as we can with one another. And that doesn't mean just trying a little bit for a little while. But it also teaches us that sin and evil are entities and powers bigger than we are, bigger than the sinner is. We're to hate evil, but we're also to love and bless and show kindness to the evildoer. First of all, that stops the cycle, doesn't it? If we just push evil against evil and fight fire with fire, we're just going to create a snowball effect. So stop that cycle. But secondly, our love and our blessing upon that person may just have the effect on that person as they see the love of God at work. I think that's what it means to heat burning coals on their heads. I don't think it means it's going to make their life a misery and pile up judgment upon them in the future. I don't think that's the the heart of the passage here. I think what it's referring to is actually if we show them love, which is actually the love of God being perfected in us, it may well, it might not, but it may well convict them of guilt in their own conscience with the hope and prayer that it might lead them to repentance. That's what heaping burning coals would do. Or what it refers to. Wisdom's needed when it comes to sin and evil, isn't it, in the world? Because on some occasions we actually need to address it, we need to confront it, we need to squash it. Times of abuse, times where there's oppression, we actually need to take action. But it's not for us to avenge. We do that for the sake of the body, for the sake of those who are made in the image of God. Not for us to avenge. Leave that to the Lord. And that's where we can actually trust that there will be justice. Complete justice for all things in the end. In Christ. Remembering that we too, if you can remember back in chapters 9 to 11, have received mercy, not justice. By the grace of God. We were enemies of God and he didn't curse us. He loved us. He blessed us. He died for us. Reconciling us to himself. So he's simply asking us to be a bit like him in this life, like father, like his children. And we're to trust him with justice and judgment.
we can be confident that Christ has bore our sin and that on the last day there won't be any sin or any act of evil and injustice that will go unpunished. Either it's been dealt with on the cross or judgment will be received in full. And we actually have the cross as the ultimate example of all of that, don't we? Where the Lord bore our judgment, where he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And therefore we know God is the one who is just and the one who justifies sinners like you and me. And so that's the beginning of our look into these chapters. The life of the children of God, like father, like sons and daughters, all of it are spiritual act of worship, all of it extremely practical and all of it only by the mercies of God. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us in your son. Help us not to take that for granted. Help us not to be like that foolish servant who was forgiven so much but would not forgive so little. But instead, Father, help us see just how much you have loved us, how much of your grace we have received, how much of your mercy you have poured out and so that our lives too would be filled and be overflowing with the same love and grace and mercy towards others. And we pray that you would continue to shape us, transform us and renew our minds, that we would know your will and that all that we do would be good and acceptable to you through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.